Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Tuesday, February 6th. I'm Hannah Floor. Governor Mike Dunleavy introduced a pair of bills last month that would allow electronic monitoring aboard commercial fishing vessels in state fisheries. That electronic monitoring could be used in place of mandatory observers aboard fishing vessels. But some in the fishing industry are wondering why it's necessary, since only a small number of state-managed fisheries require onboard observation. KFSK has the story. Nels Evans is a longliner and gillnetter and the executive director of the Petersburg Vessel Owners Association. He says he's not sure what the bill's aim is. Because it is so broad and we don't understand what it's really trying to get at, we're not supportive of it. The pair of bills, one in the Senate and one in the House, stem from a discussion at last year's Board of Fisheries meeting. The board was trying to figure out how to enforce regulations that require Area M gillnetters to keep chum salmon instead of tossing them back in favor of much more valuable king salmon. Area M is along the Alaska Peninsula and eastern Aleutians. It intercepts some chum salmon bound for western Alaska. Often, fisheries enforcement relies on observer programs. People go out on the boats to report on the actions of the fishermen. But gillnet boats are small, so it's hard to find room for an extra person. When the board looked into the possibility of electronically monitoring state fisheries, they found they need to change the law to allow it. The bills would give the State Board of Fisheries the authority to require electronic monitoring in any state-managed fishery. According to a letter attached to the bills, examples of electronic monitoring could include video cameras and gear sensors that would capture information on fishing locations and catches. Evans says creating a statewide bill to fix a very specific problem is overreach. I think the worst fear would be that it's used for full electronic monitoring implementation for all vessels in all statewide waters because that's ultimately what it would allow for because it's so broad in its reach. Fishermen have to pay to have observers on their boats. They would also have to pay to install and maintain the electronic monitoring equipment. The Aleutians East Borough is home to many Area M fishermen. Last year, the borough sent a letter to the Board of Fish in opposition to electronic monitoring of state fisheries. They estimated the cost of installing monitoring equipment at $17,000 per boat, plus another $5,000 per year in maintenance. Don Spiegelmeyer is Southeast Fleet Manager for OBI Seafoods. He says he's worried about the cost to fishermen. With the downturn in prices in the commercial fishery in the last couple of years in particular, I am concerned that additional costs added on to fishermen that are barely hanging on now might push them over the edge financially. If the bills become law, the State Department of Fish and Game will manage the electronic monitoring program. Commissioner Doug Vincent Lang would have statutory authority to implement it. He says the cost of fishermen is a consideration for the Board of Fish when deciding whether to monitor a particular fishery. And he says that just because electronic monitoring is available doesn't mean it'll be used. This bill simply adds to the toolbox for the Board of Fisheries to consider when they want to have some kind of monitoring system for commercial fishery to have electronic monitoring in addition to the opportunity to have an observer program. Currently, only a few state-managed commercial fisheries have mandatory observer programs for scallops and some crab. 
Vincent Lang says that with electronic monitoring as an option, it is possible that the Board of Fish would decide to monitor more fisheries. I think a fisherman would rather have electronic monitoring than, than having to put an observer on board their boat. In a letter attached to the bill, the State Department reported that there would be no cost to the state associated with the legislation, but funding probably would be needed to implement the program. The department would request that funding through the budget. Nominees to the Board of Fish are appointed by the governor and approved by the Alaska legislature. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. And a hearing for Senate Bill 209 will take place tomorrow, February 7th, at 1.30 p.m. Alaska time. Unalaska leaders are pushing back against a proposed petition to eliminate Chinook bycatch in the Bering Sea Alaska Pollock fishery. The tribal organizations submitting the petition represent nearly 100 tribes and communities in western Alaska. They're asking to completely eliminate any Chinook bycatch from the Pollock trawl fishery for 180 days. Unalaska Mayor Vince Tudikoff Sr. said in a letter that zero cap would, quote, effectively shut down the entire Pollock fishery of the Bering Sea and create a dire situation for Unalaska. Bering Sea Pollock is the largest fishery in the nation and Unalaska's main economic driver. Tudiakov says closing the Pollock fishery, which would be the logical result of imposing this restriction, would gut the local economy and reduce city revenues by 20%. A similar petition was denied in 2022. The tribes calling for action say the salmon runs in western Alaska have worsened in the ensuing years and that YK villages are experiencing a cultural emergency. Many in western Alaska have rung alarm bells over dismal salmon returns in recent years. Chum salmon has taken the spotlight recently. Blame often falls on Bering Sea trawlers and intercept fisheries like the Area M salmon fishery in the eastern Aleutians. Although experts agree the real culprit for declining salmon returns is climate change. The Bering Sea pollock fishery already has bycatch limits, and last year's Chinook bycatch fell well below those numbers. But those demanding tighter regulations say the current limits are unsatisfactory. The North Pacific Fisheries Management Council meets this week in Seattle, where they will discuss the proposed limits. Alaska Congresswoman Mary Paltola was in Juneau late last month. It was the last stop on a statewide tour to kick off her re-election campaign. As Katie Anastas reports, supporters praised her pro-fish policies. The top floor of Juno's Crystal Saloon was packed for Representative Paltola's final meet and greet of the week. Juno Democratic Senator Jesse Keel introduced her. She has stood up for the environment and the economy. She is pro-jobs, pro-family, pro-freedom, and pro-fish. Fish, family, freedom has been Paltola's campaign slogan since 2022 when she won a special election to fill the remainder of Congressman Don Young's term. That November, she was re-elected for a full term. Her six-day tour across the state to kick off her re-election campaign included stops in Fairbanks, Eagle River, Palmer, and Anchorage. Peltola said she and the rest of the Alaska delegation, Republican Senators Lisa Murkowski and Dan Sullivan, have accomplished a lot in the last year. She pointed to an executive order barring Russia from selling seafood to U.S. markets after processing it through other countries. That impacts fishermen throughout southeast Alaska and throughout Alaska. 
And we did make progress on that. After 10 years of the delegation pushing that executive order, we got it through a few weeks ago. So yay, Alaska. Peltola is a Democrat, but she's more in line with the Republican Party on issues like Arctic drilling and even gun control. She says one of her biggest accomplishments has been advancing the Willow Oil Project. I am proud of the fact that I helped bring it across the finish line. I was the one who worked with the leadership in in my caucus to really insist that Joe Biden meet with us. That was not a sure thing. And it was really a coup that we were able to get a meeting with him and John Podesta and two of his other staff. And the senators and I made very compelling cases And I do feel like I singularly did push that forward. But that wasn't a problem for many of the Alaskans who turned out for her event in Juneau. For Kevin Meyer, Peltola's bipartisanship is a selling point. He said voting across party lines isn't as surprising in Alaska as it might be in the lower 48. She is actually trying to solve problems, not just trying to yell at people. And that requires reaching across the aisle. And this this is a, a key gesture and... Yeah, not one that I necessarily agree with, but it's cool that she can have positions that are different from mine and I can still be all in for for her, right? University of Alaska Southeast sophomore Allison Kenny is studying environmental resources. She said Peltola's support of the Willow Project gave her some pause, but she still has her vote. I'm stoked about her policies, especially with fish conservation within Alaska. My professors this semester have taught me a lot about salmon and their importance in the culture of Southeast Alaska. I've just moved here about a year and a half ago, so it'll be my first time voting in any election, and my first time voting is in Alaska, too. Fish was also a top priority for Juneau resident Karen Smith, a former troller and longline fisher. I'm glad she's out protecting one of our mainstays here. Because if you have ever eaten any other fish anywhere else, it's not as good as ours. Peltola's challengers include Republican Nick Begich. He finished third in both the August and November races behind Peltola and former Governor Sarah Palin. Alaska Lieutenant Governor Nancy Dahlstrom, another Republican, is also running for the U.S. House seat. Her campaign is backed by a fundraising committee affiliated with U.S. House Speaker Mike Johnson. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. Tribes near Ketchikan submitted evidence last week to the Canadian government that they hope will give them a voice in transboundary mining discussions. As Jack Darrell reports, the tribes say the evidence proves they've had a historical presence along the Eunuch River, which runs through the border. Southeast Alaska tribes have long demanded a seat at the table in how Canada manages mining projects that affect lands and waters across its border. On January 30th, a coalition of the Haida, Hlingit, and Simshian tribal governments submitted testimonial evidence to protect the Yunuk River, one of their river watersheds. The tribal group fears the watershed could be damaged by a proposed open-pit gold mine on the other side of the border. The coalition is called the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission and represents 15 tribes and tribal groups in Alaska and Canada. Guy Archibald is its executive director. The border that transects these transboundary rivers is a completely false construct. Nothing in nature respects that line on the map. The water, the salmon, the people, the wildlife. Nothing respects that. What happens in the upper reaches of these transboundary rivers will impact our tribes 
our communities, and our tribal citizens. The evidence submitted by the commission, which includes personal testimony from tribal members of Metlakatla and other communities in the watershed, is meant to demonstrate the Tlingit people's historic presence along the Yunuk River. The river, northeast of Ketchikan, is an established wild salmon habitat and holds cultural significance to Alaska natives. And the tribal governments say it's under threat from the S.K. Creek Mine, a silver and gold mining project proposed upriver in British Columbia. Essentially, what the tribes are alleging is that unregulated mining across the border in Canada is conflicting with the tribe's obligation to protect traditional lands for future generations. Taja Wali Thati Ta Wagner, a member of the Wolf Clan in Metlakatla, testified that she grew up harvesting hooligan, king salmon, and moose on the Yanuk and plans to protect that cultural right. I would really love to see for us to do another community harvest on that river again and see those bright smiles on everyone's faces one more time and to bring that hooligan to our elders. That is what I would really love to see happen in the future, and I hope to be able to see that for future generations to come. Skeena Resources Limited, the Vancouver-based mining company in charge of the mining proposal, didn't respond to repeated requests for comment. Earth Justice, the organization representing the Tribal Commission, has also brought a case against the Canadian government alleging that their refusal to consult with Alaska Native tribes on large-scale mining developments is an international human rights violation. The claim was recently recognized by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Earth Justice attorney Ramin Pajan says the rights of the land's original inhabitants precede the boundaries that divided the Yanuck River. And this wasn't like a new right. I mean, these went back millennia. And what we're doing here is essentially the same. I mean, these are rights go back millennia and and the ownership of the Yunuk River and the territory and the use of that river as integral to their culture, uh, to their subsistence. It, that goes back thousands of years, much before these borders were in place. Pajan says the goal is to capitalize on recent Canadian legal precedent to get the country to consult with Alaska tribes properly, the way they would for tribes protected under the Constitution in Canada. If they're successful, it would be the first time in history that a U.S.-based tribe is granted participating Indigenous nation status in Canada. The country has never legally recognized U.S.-based Indigenous peoples as stakeholders in the country's policy decisions. In Ketchikan, with reporting help from Shelby Herbert in Petersburg, I'm Jack Darrell. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.